Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Welcome to Season 7 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. Fried exists to help you remove the layer of shame, blame, guilt, or judgment that is standing in the way of your burnout recovery. We do this by helping you to feel seen, heard, and validated. With a mix of shorter solo episodes and longer deep dives with guests, each episode offers a burnout recovery step that you can take to move along the burnout recovery journey. To help that journey further, you are more than invited to join Fried's Facebook group for support and or book a call to get started with burnout coaching with a Fried guide. If you are an event planner or a company leader and you'd like Kate to come present for you, please reach out at info at As a keynote speaker, coach, podcaster, and author, all of my work is aligned under the mission to hashtag end burnout culture. I can't wait to hear what step forward you'll make thanks to this week's episode. One of the things I realized in hindsight about this whole burnout and recovery thing was I was collecting dots the whole time and I didn't realize it. In hindsight, now I can connect the dots and it's still a work in progress. So I've kind of bucketed for the purposes of our conversation here, Kate, and for your listeners, I have bucketed my burnout journey into seven relatively tidy buckets or categories that over time created a bit of a journey. So I'd love to play with that today. When we were talking about this just before getting started and you said, you know, there's seven-ish phases and these might not be the same phases or the same buckets for everybody. And I immediately loved that amount of flexibility in it. So for those of you who are just tuning in, today I am talking with Dr. Mandy Leto, who is a coach for senior executives in finance whose lives look shiny on the outside, but inside they're hanging by a thread and almost no one would know. She's also the host of Enough, the podcast, a show for people who've had enough of pushing themselves to the limits but don't know where to start. Mandy, I really want to dig into these seven-ish phases. I love frameworks and systems, even when they don't exactly align for every single person, because I think as soon as we say, well, this works for everybody, we're talking nonsense, right? Because there's so many different pieces to everyone's story. But, but let's just jump into bucket number one. So bucket number one is denial. Mm. And this was this the state where I was rapidly declining, but the timing was bad. You know, I was like, maybe we could do this in six months, body. But like, right now... I've really got a lot on the calendar and, you know, I can be playful with this now, but it was just really sucky timing. And there were all these little signs that I found all sorts of ways to logic around. So there was the, the lead suit body phenomenon, mm. you know, that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, and then there was like the perpetual brain fog that even mm -hmm. weapons grade espresso wouldn't lift. <laughs> And then there was like this chronic snappiness that would emerge at random times that had not necessarily anything to do with being annoyed with the kids or dealing with something from work. I would be chopping carrots and, you know, some all of a sudden this fog would descend on me and I would for no reason just get so tight everywhere. And then, you know, my son's practicing clarinet and my daughter's turning up the Teletubbies too loud. And then I'm going to completely lose my shiz and I'm chopping carrots in the kitchen, feeling like I'm on jumper cable. So that kind of mm. random snappiness that mm -hmm. could have come from nowhere, that was a clue. And then just this constant feeling that something's not quite right. So what I did as a lifelong overachiever was I turned sharply into doing things that had always lifted me out of feeling crappy before. Like, let's do more high intensity interval training. <laughs> <laughs> so I hired this six foot four semi-professional rugby player to personal train me. And he had me like running on the treadmill 
at maximum incline as fast as I could, like the bionic woman. And I was like turning bright red and practically foaming at the mouth. But, oh man, did it feel good? Because, you know, those last little morsels of juice inside of me, it felt good to do that. And more coffee, more working with the rugby player. And, you know, I'm constantly saying, push me harder. I need to snap out of this. Push me harder. Push me harder. And one day we were in the gym boxing because he said, well, boxing's pretty tough. That's going to get you in shape. And I absolutely collapsed. Mm. And then I realized um, something isn't right here that more espresso is going to fix. So that was really the slap in the face around denial. So that was phase one of denial. Phase two, which actually put the fire under my backside, was getting this horrible cornflake rash around Mm. my nose and mouth, Mm -hmm. which turned out to be perioral dermatitis. And my mom, bless her, she's like, have you tried apple cider vinegar? Have you tried garlic? Have you tried? It's like, mom, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. Apple cider vinegar ain't going to cut it for this. And you can't even cover up that stuff with concealer. It just looks worse. Yeah. So I went into this hibernation. I'm trying to recover from, you know, just feeling completely depleted. And then this thing on my face. And, you know, I felt nervous to leave the house, you know, standing at the school gate with this, you know, what do you, it wasn't even COVID. So I couldn't wear a mask, (laughs) which would have been a good timing for that. But, you know, it's summertime and Mm -hmm. mm. you're just looking like a hot mess. I'm just really looking like, well, less hot, more mess. And uh, it finally drove me to go. I think that was my third or fourth visit to the doctor after being told repeatedly, there's nothing wrong with you. Have you had a vacation recently? You know, do you have support at home? And, you know, the the frustration is mounting because I know something's not right. But then when the experts, air quotes experts, tell you there's nothing wrong with you, you think, oh, it just must be me. I'm weak. So that was phase one. Does that land for you, Kate? Denial. Yeah. Phase one denial. And, but where phase is denial transitioning into phase two with the collapse and the rash, like is the end of phase one, some obvious, like slap you in the face or knock you on the floor or grow on your face event that says you can't, there's no denying this anymore. We have to push you to this edge because you're not paying attention. This is something that I hear that happened to me, happened to almost everybody I talk to. So is that the transition space between phase one and phase two? I think so. And I think there's a little bit of a bleed between those two lines because phase two, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of purposely pulling them apart, but they're not neat and tidy, obviously. So phase two is triage. Right. Triage is all about desperation where there's like, okay, all hands on deck. My worth as a human being is dissipating day by day as my, you know, I'm, I'm not able to do. So my mantra in the old days was I do, therefore I am. So when I couldn't do very much because it Lord knows I tried at that stage. You know, that was a blip. It was temporary, but I started to go downhill pretty quickly at that stage. Uh, I was having trouble climbing stairs, you know, even climb. I know in your book, you talk about climbing the little hill by your house from, from the tram station, you know, it's just a four minute walk, but the heart is hammering. I had the same experience trying to climb up the stairs. Mm-hmm. I was crawling up the stairs on all fours and like having to rest with my back against the wall, still trying to tell myself this is going to pass. And there's this slow transition to, yeah, something needs to be done here. So yeah. there's this desperation that sets in of like, okay, I'm going to get my clipboard out. What are we going to do to sort out this situation? So doctor, blood tests, uh, sign up for meditation camp, though I don't know really how I'm going to drag my butt there. Uh, acupuncture. And meanwhile, this whole thing about my worth tanking because mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do, I had to clear my calendar. Optimistically, I just did it for one month <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> and uh, Exactly. Ha ha ha. And self-loathing is up because I was so angry with my body. It's like, you've betrayed me. And it's like, Bish, you've been betraying me for about 40 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, but there's not that awareness. Like right. I certainly was not at that place yet. So that's the sort of triage phase where I went to see a nutritional therapist. She's like, okay, we are cutting coffee out. And I went, <gasps> how will I function? We're, we're cutting wine out. <gasps> how will I sleep? And, you know, all the things, no gluten, as you know, yeah. uh, no sugar, no yeah. caffeine, no wine. And I got this rigorous binder size thing. I'm like, this is going to be the eating plan, which leads me to phase three, which mm. is hack my healing. <laughs> <laughs> so I repurposed my overachiever to all of a sudden do all the things like a gold star pupil. I'm going to be the best meditator. I'm going to go for acupuncture three times a week. <laughs> I'm going to put double the amount of kale into my smoothie. <laughs> so basically it tastes like I'm drinking pulverized toilet brushes. Like, And I'm not going to use ice because I'm going to use frozen cauliflower. Exactly. Oh, you're in my head. You're in my head. <laughs> I am your head, I think. I think I'm, I'm listening to you saying, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. And yeah. the seeking, the seeking for external experts. Yeah. I was so disconnected from my own wisdom yeah. and from my own body and from my own knowing that there was this constant sense of, I need to go outside to have somebody else tell me what to do. I will then excel at it and, and then will I will okay. be freed and yeah, I will which, return yeah. back to the old This me. This needs some time. This is yeah. a zone that I think needs some time because I purposely, and I, I have a much shorter coaching program than a lot of people that do burnout recovery because I believe that my job is to get you back to a place where you know what you need next, which still might be some external help. It might be acupuncture once a week or twice a week. It might be a massage therapist. It might be a functional nutritionist. It might be your doctor. It might be thyroid medication. It might be vitamin D. It might. There are a million solutions. But my goal as a coach is never to have you thinking that I have the answers for you. And I understand that when you're burnt out, you literally don't have the answers for yourself. And you're not going to find them because this is it's so outside of every way that you've always been. It requires such a drastic transformer transformation. You know, what? does everybody know what transformers are? Like those, you know, like He-Man type figures that like make, become cars or trucks or whatever. Mine was a dumpster fire. <laughs> um, it requires such a big shift that I do think that an outside perspective is necessary and can should be used in a short term because it should help you get into yourself in a way that allows you to figure out those next pieces which doesn't mean also that this is such a tricky one and there's so much nuance in here and I want to hear your thoughts when I wrap this piece up this there's such a tendency in the burnt out amongst us to be uber self-sufficient. There's a, a trauma response that's known as super autonomous self-sufficiency, SAS for short, which I think is funny. If you have super autonomous, autonomous self-sufficiency, if you are hyper-independent and hyper-responsible in that way, then learning to ask for help and get help and lean on help is important. So how do we help people pull apart what I need from others, because we do need things from others, and what I and when I can stand on my own two feet, or what I need from myself, and like this is a spider's web, or a tangled necklace, or a, whatever it is, tangled Christmas lights. I, yeah. yeah, for sure. I think that didn't come for me in the hack the healing, right. hack your healing phase. Okay. Uh, I think you're right. That phase is long because I tried so many things. And yeah. I flew to Arizona to sit in the presence of one of the top coaches in the world thinking, yeah. he's going to give me the answers. <laughs> and I went there and he said, nobody's coming to save you, Mandy. Uh, we save ourselves. And I thought, oh, 
you could have sent me an email with that. And all the wild women retreats and Mm -hmm. the talking to my lady parts and the sitting on a mountainside in Sedona and working with spiritual teachers and like all the things that I was so desperate to try because I didn't trust or feel like I had access to the wisdom inside of me. Mm -hmm. I was so disconnected from my body and I had such a other focused relationship with the world, meaning, you know, being a people pleaser, perfectionist, I wasn't connected to myself, Mm -hmm. to my own likes, dislikes, to my own needs, Mm -hmm. to my Mm -hmm. own wants, Mm -hmm. because it was Mm -hmm. always about external validation. I'll be who you need me to be to get the pat on the head or the gold star. Mm -hmm. And these behaviors become so internalized. So it makes sense to me in hindsight, when I'm connecting the dots, that I didn't trust the wisdom because if I would have, I probably wouldn't have gotten to the stage in the first place. Right. And I always felt for quite a long time that the wisdom was outside of me. Mm -hmm. And as you say, in some cases it is, I am never going to self-administer acupuncture. Right. Yeah. I am not going to be my own shiatsu practitioner or, you know, any of the other things. Even be your own coach. Exactly. Exactly. So there was this period, probably a couple of months, maybe even half a year, where there was this slow realization. So there's more like this blur between phases three and four. And the Mm -hmm. fourth phase is what I would call the reluctant surrender. Mm. And the reluctant surrender for me is like, I don't know how to win at this. Mm -hmm. And there was so much anger and this feeling of betrayal of the body continued into this Mm -hmm. phase. But then there's this sadness. And under the sadness, there was so much grief. Grief. Yeah. Yeah. For the old me who I thought I had lost. But there was starting to be enough self-awareness, at least little inklings of it, that I had been pushing myself pretty hard. I'd been pretty tough on myself. So there was also a grief around that and also that that strategy that had made me successful wasn't going to be the combination to this lock. Which is so hard. It's so annoying when you're in that phase. (laughs) I've used this to be successful for so long and now you're telling me that this is not the method. What? It's rude. It feels rude. Rude. And then it just feels like a nothingness. Yeah. And yeah. like, how will I ever, how will I ever feel like myself again? So it's like this death of an identity. It's this death of a self-knowing. And in the moment, it never feels like there's any possibility around that. It just right. feels like a darkness, a heaviness, a hopelessness. Yeah. And I remember going to see this woman who wrote this fantastic book called The Joy of Burnout. And I looked her up. Oh, yeah, Dina Globerman. She's living, she lives in London, Mm -hmm. or at least she did at the time. And I went Mm -hmm. and had a one-to-one session with her. Mm -hmm. And I did all the things I thought she wanted me to do so she would pony up the solution to what would make me feel better. And she just wasn't buying it. So she's asking me to color and she's asking me to stand bare feet on her carpet and put my body into shapes. And inside my head, I'm like, Oh, F F S honestly, it's like, okay, let's stand here and be a cactus. She's saying, Mandy, what sound would the cactus make? Uh, I don't know. What sound does a cactus make? And I felt that all of that passive aggressive anger that had nothing to do with this lovely woman, but she wasn't giving me the thing I wanted. And I was, I was being so, I was trying to manipulate her. Yeah. And she knew exactly what I was doing. Yeah. So it was this two people being polite to one another, but there's like this unspoken thing in the room. And I'm like, okay, I'll make the sound of a cactus. I'll play your game. And then she looked me straight square in the eye and she said, what if this is the best you're ever going to feel? And it felt like taking a bullet. She was seeing where I was going with this. Like, was I willing to be in the reluctant surrender? My phrase, not hers. 
And this is what I mean about like you ping pong between these buckets because I'm like, no, no way. I'm not, I refuse to believe this. And then when I went down the stairs out of her apartment and back onto the streets in London, I started to cry like the hot tears came up. And I, I felt deep and visceral awareness of what she was saying that that was true. What if this was it? And I had to come to an acceptance around that. And my type A Aries Enneagram 3 bulldozer personality was 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 not going to affect that. Yeah. Hence the grief and yeah. you know that that leads to the next phase which for me I call the humbling. Mm. And I can't remember which of her books it is, but there's a phrase by Cheryl Strayed, and I'm paraphrasing here now based on memory, but I think she says something like this, that acceptance is a small, quiet room. And that's exactly what this phase felt like. This grief, this drying out, this self-acceptance, like, oh, my best days are behind me. I'll never amount to anything again. Uh, like just this self-loathing has almost petered out. So it's not this sort of heavy black hole anymore, but it's just this nothingness and this acceptance of, okay. It feels like there's a loss of the feist somehow. Yeah. Well, the feist was... The true feist was lost ages ago. You were working on false feist. Yeah. From the moment of denial forward, right? Like, this is no longer your spark. This is adrenaline. Right? So this is, like, there's a there's the sort of admittance to the loss of spark. In Chinese medicine, there's a difference between, like, there's, like, a there's this idea of the fire that lives in your deep belly and keeps you going for your life and it extinguishes when you die. And that, that fire is called Jing, J-I-N-G. And there's something called false fire, which is these sparks that come out and the feistiness and, the th and, the, and that denial and that fight back and all of that stuff. But it's not actually coming from deep inside of you. It's a false fire that's created out of friction between you and your life, you and the world. Mm. So this what feels a beautiful like... beautiful description. Yeah. Right? Like that, it feels like to me, this idea of this humbling is like releasing the, the false fire which is the only way that you can get back down to the fire that's still burning. And it is still, if you're alive, it's still burning. Mm, that's really beautiful. I've never heard of that before. And it explains a lot because now in hindsight, there's a few more buckets to go, but in hindsight, <laughs> it, there feels like I have access to a softness yeah. and a humility yeah. and a suppleness that I, I think it was always there, but I never permissioned it to be part of who I was. And I think there's also a realizing in the humbling when it's there are some green shoots coming up, like yeah. after a long Canadian winter, you see those little things coming up finally. Yeah. Of, well, maybe it's going to be okay. Yeah. And then there's, for sure, it's not going to be okay. And of like, course, well, maybe it'll be okay. And oh my God, everything just burned down. And oh my God, maybe it's actually okay. <laughs> and back and forth. I want to um, ask you about this sentence. You just said that you found this, this softness, this suppleness. And you said, I, I never permissioned it. My, I feel like the way that I might phrase that would be, I didn't live a life as a child that allowed me to permission that. So I didn't know it was there. So I couldn't have permissioned it because I didn't know it was one of the options. So the And the reason I, I want to pick at that a little bit is there's, and I know you don't do this in your work because I 
read your work all the time, but I know that this group of people that listens to this podcast, there's a there's a lot of space that's stuck in blame. And there's other blame and like we're blaming other people for things, our parents for the way we grew up, our boss for being bullied or whatever. And some of those things are true and some of them are not true and it doesn't really matter. And then there's this self-blame. Well, I never, I never, and I don't think you said it that way, but I also don't want anyone to hear it that way. I never permissioned myself. Well, yeah, because you probably didn't know it was even an option or that it was even there. So you couldn't have permissioned yourself because you never got that lesson. Like that's something you're supposed to learn over time that you didn't get. Burnout is what allowed you to learn the lesson of permissioning it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good catch. I think there was a soft side to me there, mm -hmm. but it was never validated. It right, wasn't exactly. valued. It yes. wasn't it wasn't something that I got the pats on the head or right. the the go you type of a thing for. Yes. Right. It was quite the opposite. It was all about mm -hmm. winning. It was all mm -hmm. about, you know, the trophies and the blue ribbons and the gold stars. Yes. And again, in hindsight, I understand it because I think about it. My dad was the one at home who was super hard on me ever since mm -hmm. I was little. I was the firstborn. Mm -hmm. He had grown up in a very, very difficult situation in rural Canada, no running water, no electricity, no yeah. toilets. Uh, both of his parents were dead by the time he was 17. Mm -hmm. It was tough. Yeah. And so he had to learn how to pick himself up by his bootstraps. And I'm pretty sure in hindsight, all the signs were there that he had undiagnosed PTSD. Yeah. His father would beat him. His father, that both of his parents were alcoholics. He mm -hmm. became an alcoholic. And mm -hmm. then a lot of, you know, when, when that stuff isn't addressed and back in those days, therapy and counseling, and it wasn't a thing. No. So I can see in hindsight why it happened that he drank himself to death at the age of 53. I'm 52 now. I've become much softer around that. But, oh, I had a hot little fire burning around blaming him for most of my young adult and my 20-something life, that yeah. my life was basically a dumpster fire because of how he had pushed me relentlessly and how my relationships were all dysfunctional with men and, you know, because I ha I felt always like I had to be a performance of myself. One more time. Can you say that sentence again? I felt like I had to be a performance of myself. So there were certain aspects of my personality that were acceptable, palatable, championed, welcomed, encouraged. And there were other parts of my personality and my humanness, my wholeness, that were simply not for public consumption. And these are all messages that we learn growing up, dependent mm -hmm. on what's where love is withdrawn and where, where love is given. And exactly. So this is where all those perfectionist messages came in. Like when you win, you are lovable. Mm -hmm. When you are ordinary, mediocre, or a failure, mm -hmm. don't come near me. I don't want to know you. Yeah. And that meant even in my romantic relationships, like I'm processing all of this trauma, not knowing any of that, that I need to perform a certain way or love will be withdrawn and I will not be acceptable. So there are certain parts of my wholeness that got put in the cupboard under the stairs. And it takes a lot of energy to keep up the facade of this curated self, never going out without makeup not gaining weight, uh, winning at all the things, which means therefore you only do things that you're already good at mm -hmm. and live a smaller life. Mm -hmm. And ooh, the criticism, the self-criticism. Brutal. Yeah. It's yeah, brutal. Yeah. It is As a brutal. gymnast, I moved from one gym to another. I must have been nine or 10. And the first gym that I was at had a passing rule for scores. So if you weren't getting consistently judged scored at a 7.5 or higher, you were failing. 
and I went to a new gym and I had to do sort of like, you know, your tryouts to find out what level you're going to enter. And so I did a floor routine and it came back as like a 7.25 or something. Mm. And I lost it. And they were like, what's the matter? And I said, well, I failed. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you have to get a 7.5 to. And they were like, says who? And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I'll never forget that moment of realizing that just because a system is one way in one place, that doesn't mean that it's that way in every other place. And I just looked at them and they were like, you're absolutely moving right into level four. Like this is sufficient. And I was like, what? I, I can hear your brain, brain bending. Yeah, yeah, I was. I remember just being floored by the fact that I didn't need to be so perfect. Even a 7.5 was already like, so it was really not great. And here they are telling me that a 7.25, or I don't remember what the number was, it was, but it was good enough. And I was like, just so baffled that that could be true because in school I could only get a hundred clearly there's only two grades in school a hundred or fail for sure yes yeah 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 exactly yeah so and that pressure I think there's accumulation in the body I mean you're the you're the body expert Kate but I feel and correct me if what I'd love to hear what you think but I think there's accumulation of those things over the years of this pressure that we constantly put on ourselves and it just piles up like little micro sandbags up Mm -hmm. and up and up and up and up. And I I really think that does something to skew how we look at situations and the, the, the challenge with these kind of traits. This is interesting because on my own podcast, uh, last week I had Dr. Anna Lemke, who Mm -hmm. is one of the world experts on on dopamine, uh, you know, dopamine mm-hmm. opioids addiction mm-hmm. yes and she's fabulous she is she is such a smart woman and we were talking about addiction to achievement mm-hmm. and she said work and achievement are powerful powerful drugs yeah Pride fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote unquote fine. And they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home with just a couple of drops of blood? Cyfox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. Go to cyfoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount. That's S-I-P-H-O-X health.com forward slash fried. And it really got me thinking when we geeked out on what dopamine actually neurologically does to us and how when we repeatedly use, and she said, you know, if we think about achievement and success, being addicted to success, being addicted to praise, being addicted to external validation, all of those things that fall into that. What what she said is that basically it resets our dopamine tonic level. Yes. And therefore, you need more of it Mm -hmm. to even feel normal, which Mm -hmm. explains the slide into burnout by, you know, you achieve something and there's not even any joy around it. It just feels like you need to, on autopilot, move to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing, it's this hall of mirrors. Mm -hmm. And it's this moving from 
joy sucked to joy sucked that's supposed to feel good and it doesn't and you the seductiveness of the it's going to be the next thing that for absolutely sure then i'll feel enough and then you get there and it's like wah, wah. next one must be the next one for sure i thought this is be- what i wanted <laughs> Well, and the interesting, the other interesting part about that is that when you have that dopamine rush that goes up, say you, we talk about this a lot with athletes. Um, I've been contacted recently to start working with some athletes, which I would love to do. And I'm so fascinated by, but one of the things that happens with athletes is you reach, like we have Iga Świątek, who is the uh, Polish tennis player. She's currently number one in the world. She's been number one in the world for like 67 weeks or something wild. She's, and she's 22. And you're already number one in the world at 22, right? So this is a this massive accomplishment. But when you get to that accomplishment, when you win the Olympic medal, when you get win the playoff game, when you do the thing, your elation is really short-lived. And your the rush of not just dopamine, but various neurochemicals that rush into your brain, the next day all drop below their baseline before they come back to neutral. So it is normal and natural to feel like shit after you feel really great. It's supposed to do that, but we think that we're going to feel great and then we're just going to maintain it because something happened. Like, you guys, that's not how it works. So if you've ever been down on yourself for not enjoying something enough, like it's your brain on neurochemicals. Yeah, because she said that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain. Yes. So if we think about it, she talked about it like a seesaw. If we mm-hmm. tip into pleasure, the brain always wants homeostasis. So all of a sudden, the pain gremlins jump on to bring it back into homeostasis. But what it happens is it tends to tip even lower, as you said. And there's this drying out period, mm-hmm. my phraseology, not hers, but that is required for about four weeks, she mm-hmm. said, to be able to reset that those, those dopamine levels to where they should be. And I think in hindsight, this was one of the blessings of the humbling bucket Mm. because being, you know, I think there's some overlap of being in Mm -hmm. that drying out and not being able to function at that Mm -hmm. level and Mm -hmm. to get that dopamine and just to sit in your emotional dirty diaper and like, oh, this sucks. And I, I suck. And am I ever going to mount to like just being in the, uh, in the suckage Mm -hmm. of all of it. And I realize now having spoken to her and read her book and like all the other guests I've had on the podcast, like this is also normal. Mm -hmm. It's not a shortcoming. It's the brain correcting Mm -hmm. all of the over torquing in that direction to begin with. Exactly. So it's like, Oh, okay. When I didn't I have get this, the memo of that at that time. Ex- nobody did. And we live in a world of social media where we can constantly get more. So we're constantly scrolling. But one of the things that's built into my business is when I have a big speaking event, if I have to fly somewhere, be on stage, there's 500 people in the crowd, which is it's my one of my favorite things to do. But I know if that's a Tuesday, then on Wednesday, I'm probably going to feel crappy. I take Wednesday off. I have a like, permission depression day after a big event like that, because the event happens, you're flying high, you have people coming up to you being like, oh, that was so great. I loved, you know, and then you get one comment somewhere that's like, she spoke too fast or like, you know, something like <laughs> something like there's always somebody in the room that hates you no matter what you do. That's just normal. And then you just, it just, and you stay down and it takes time. So I have learned that One of the things that helps us move through that, this is in, you know, um, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, the Nagoski Sisters Mm -hmm. book, right? I have to, I get up, I exercise, I have a decent breakfast. I don't have coffee on days that I drink. I don't have coffee on days, uh, on days that I drink, (laughs) on days that I speak. I don't drink coffee also after the day after I speak. Usually if I am at a hotel and I have to exercise inside, then I do. But if there's an opportunity to be in nature while I'm moving, then I do that instead. And so I have this whole set of rituals the day after an event because it's normal for your brain to do this thing. Yeah. So you have to buy yourself that time. You have to know that it's happening, be okay with it and plan for it. Yeah. I think instead of up-leveling, 
I heard this phrase from a client yesterday and I said to him, I'm like, I'm totally stealing this phrase. But you know, the achiever part of the brain was always looking for ways to up level. Dopamine, yeah. give me dopamine, give me dopamine. <laughs> but then I thought, I like the phrase smart leveling. Mm. And smart leveling, exactly what you said, if I've had a speaking gig, if I've gone and done a workshop, something like that, I do the same thing. Well, I have a variation on that, that the next day needs to be gentle. Mm-hmm. And the next day needs to be slow and I need mm-hmm. to lower my expectations. Mm-hmm. So I'm not down leveling because, you know, my inner critic, Judgy Janet would really not like me to down level. Mm-hmm. But if I smart level, it's like yeah. that's acceptable to her. So yeah. there's the, there's a couple of practices I have in that stage. I, I do red light therapy. So mm-hmm. I have a bio light, mm-hmm. red light mat that I lay on. It's like a big yoga mat with all these mm-hmm. red LEDs and I meditate. I've got one too. You got one too? Oh, <laughs> uh, I knew I liked you. Yeah. And you know, doing that, doing the red light therapy, doing meditation, like there's certain there's certain commitments I have now to non-goal-oriented growth. Yes. And I think those things that have no outcome, like no goal-oriented purpose, uh, the way I started off meditation was that it was going to hack my healing and it was going to get me somewhere, bless my cotton socks, but it didn't, <laughs> it didn't work that way. But it's worth doing simply because it feels good. Yes. Not to get somewhere. Yes. So I finally figured that out. I would say that's in the next bucket, bucket. which is mm-hmm. number six, which is shoots and ladders, or as we had in Canada growing up, snakes and ladders, but I'll stick to shoots because I'm not a fan of snakes. So, uh, <laughs> and this was the experimental phase. And mm-hmm. I still think I'm in this bucket a lot. Mm-hmm. And this is like, if I don't need to be that performance of myself anymore and I don't need to uphold standards and I don't need to contort myself to be who I think I need to be so that other people will approve of me and validate me, Mm -hmm. which all sounds so obvious for a middle-aged woman, but it's like unpicking all of this stuff that has dandelion roots. Like you think Mm -hmm. it's gone and then there it is again Mm -hmm. and you pull it out and you think there it is again. And this is why I mean with the shoots and ladders that you think you make some progress and then you roll the dice and that's like, okay, we're back here again. Yeah. So things I've been experimenting lately, like for example, for somebody who never left the house, I even went to the gym with makeup, Kate. Oh, wow. That's, that's hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been experimenting lately. Like I've gone to, I did put mascara on for you today, Thank but, you. um, I, have not worn any eye makeup for a couple weeks and nobody noticed. Mm-hmm. Or if they did, they didn't say anything. Yeah. And I have, you know, like having had the burnout and being, having gone through menopause because of the hormonal havoc, havoc that that kicked up, I've gained probably five kilos. Mm-hmm. That, Which is about 11 pounds for the Americans. Yeah. That I'm struggling to shake. Mm-hmm. I gained 50. <laughs> well, this is like Pounds. 10 years in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that is still clinging on with a bony death grip. And yeah. I was like, okay, I am going back to the humbling stage. And like, yeah. I can look down and look at my pinchable bit around my middle and I can live in loathing with that. Or I can choose to, I don't have to love it. I'm not like, doing kisses at my naked body in the mirror when I'm slathering cream on in front of the steamy mirror after a shower. But I'm in, I think I can say this, I am in full on self-acceptance. It doesn't mean there's not things I would like to change, but my body has done so many good things to take me out of the pit of despair where I was in bucket two or three. Yeah. And it knew how to do that in spite of me, not because of me in mm. spite of me and my interventions. Mm. And I think like a little respect, girl, a little respect. So yeah. I think this is part of the shoots and ladders. Like I'm not saying that I don't look down and think, ugh, we're going on holiday next week. And I look down and I find myself going, ugh, could really do without that. And then it's like, yeah. And remember who you are. Yeah. So there's also that 
that sovereign woman, that empowered self that is rising. And I don't know whether that's a gift of being 50 something or just seeing the bigger picture of realizing that if nobody's noticed my lack of eyeliner for several weeks, probably nobody's that fixated on my cute little muffin top either. Right. So it's like certain things we can let that shit go already. Yeah. 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 So that is where I'm now tippy toeing into bucket number seven, lucky seven, which is my lucky number, which is me experimenting with wholeness. And I used to have this idea that to be in wholeness was somehow having it all together, you know, mm. like whatever cupboard you open, it's all organized. You know, like those Instagram videos, I can't stop watching where all the cereal is in those clear plastic boxes and the home edit, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I slightly stare at those things transfixed with these saucer eyes thinking like my life should look like that. And it doesn't. And I'm realizing that wholeness isn't that. Wholeness is reclaiming all of the energy that has remained stuck in those relationships, in those interactions, in those places where I swallowed my anger, where I avoided the confrontation because good girls don't rock the boat. Mm -hmm. I'm going back and I actually have an energetic practice for this where I'm reclaiming all of those parts of my energy that I have left stuck into situations or other people. And if this doesn't sound too, well, I don't even care if it sounds woo. I give it in my meditation on my red light mat to my higher self. And she has this special oak box where I put it. She cleans it up Mm -hmm. and then she gives it back to me. And it fills all those Swiss cheesy parts of me, the Swiss cheese holes of energy that I have given out into the world. And this is my wholeness equals whole mess phase Mm -hmm. that I'm in right now. And I'm in the shoots and ladders phase all the time. I'm in the humbling still all the time. Occasionally, the ladder even goes so far as the shoot rather goes all the way down to self-loathing and self-criticism mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And I know with a roll of the dice or the beginning of a new day or less caffeine, a little more meditation, a little more green things, but not kale, just gave up on kale as well, is... um. <laughs> When I don't have to be the performance of myself, yeah, I'm now experimenting with all those parts that weren't, weren't deemed palatable or acceptable. And that means the muffin top self. That means the self that gets cranky. That means the self that like just couldn't be arsed to put makeup on right now because I'm really busy and life is lifing. Yeah. And all the other hundreds of things that spin off of that, that, that look like busy, full complex life at this stage. One of the things that comes up in the burnout world a lot is this idea of people saying, well, I work with people so that they can prevent burnout. And I'm like, who is hiring you to prevent burnout before they're burnt out? And if they're already burnt out, then you're not preventing burnout at all. Like, what are you talking about? So I have a, I have an issue. I use the hashtag because it works for the algorithm. But I have an issue with this idea of preventing burnout. And a lot of that is because this denial phase is so is so big. And in order to prevent burnout, you would have had to do some of the humbling before the denial started. And that's just like you can go back and forth once you know that they're both there. But before you know they're both there, it's really hard. So what I'm I have an image in my mind of. Did you ever play flip cup? This is a drinking no, game. No, I'm intrigued. This, this is a drinking <laughs> game in the States. You play basically on a ping pong table or some sort of flat surface. You have those red solo cups half filled with beer and you throw a ping pong ball. And if you get it in the cup, the other person has to drink it down. <laughs> and so I have a picture in my head of seven cups. <laughs> <laughs> that a ping pong ball can is like bouncing in and out and like in between and just sort of like landing in whichever bucket it's in right now. And it's haphazard. Maybe it hits a rock and ends up in a different bucket that you weren't ready for. Like, so that's an image that's coming up. But the question that's coming up for me is where do you think that the work that we do is the most beneficial for people? 
Because like in the denial phase, we're not getting anywhere, right? And they're not even calling us because that's not even a thing. And then people are like, I wish I knew about you two years ago. I'm like, even if you had known about me, you wouldn't have thought that you needed me. So it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a stage within these seven that you think is like the a, a really good time to connect with someone to get some support? I think I, by accident, and again, I can only, my sample study is one. <laughs> I, me, but this worked for me. I got help around that, the reluctant surrender. So yeah. I had, I had a fleet of people helping me and I realized there's totally privilege around that. I get that. I had the acupuncture, I was doing yoga, I had shiatsu, I went yeah. for massage therapy, all the things which was alarming me because it was also draining my bank account of course whilst I was working but I was so determined and there came a time with the when the nutritional therapist that I was working with we had the kind of come to Jesus moment where mm -hmm. we sat knee to knee in her office and she said I've taken you as far as I can take you Thank the you rest for your honesty. yeah I really appreciate that she said the rest is an inside job mm. and I said what do you mean and she suggested that I work with a coach on getting out of my head and really beginning to explore the terrain of what was in my body, what was there from the neck down, what was being blocked. Uh, she didn't say any of that because, you know, it would be an alarming conversation to have in a Harley St Street well-illuminated clinic with soft music and plants in the corner, you know, it's yeah. so... I didn't really get it at that stage when I did start to work with a coach and she asked me to consider, she asked me to do all kinds of things. I like go to five rhythms dancing and, uh, which was fun, uh, not fun. Um, but again, it was cause I wanted to do it right. Yeah. And five rhythms is a dance with no steps. Right. You make it up. Yeah. And, you know, she did a lot of embodiment work with me of, you know, even going to work with a tantric practitioner and immediately my resistance was up. I'm like, that's like orgies and sting and Trudy and baby oil and all the things. I'm like, hell no, I am not doing that. And it didn't turn out to be that at all. I, I scared myself by Googling tantric and I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. And I just had these visions of sitting next, you know, across from a sweaty palm guy in track pants with an enormous erection and like, staring meaningfully into his eyes. And I'm like, I am not signing up for that. Like, how do I even get my husband to? I was like, I'm going to this thing, honey. But it wasn't that. It was, it was grounding work. It was mm. unblocking my chakras. And I was just like, I had no idea about any of this. And getting in touch with stuff that was trapped in my body. I had no idea that emotions and anger and resentment and all of those things stayed in your body. I was like, what do you mean? Like, can, where are they? Where can you see them on an x-ray? And I mean, okay, I wasn't that literal, but I had no idea how much emotion was trapped in my body. Yeah. So I could take all the vitamin D and drink all the pulverized toilet brush kale smoothies that I was ever going to drink. And it wasn't going to get me in that place. That was the, the root, the hot little motor of my overachieving was a coping mechanism for yeah. stuff that I hadn't resolved. Right. So for me, that was a good point of intervention where I was beginning to go into like leaving the denial and going into the reluctant surrender. Yeah. And I did not go gracefully and willingly down the candlelit path of all of that. I think it was a, it was a very turbulent back and forth process for me yeah. because to learn how to keep all that stuff pushed down <sighs> took decades. So it wasn't going to come up in, you know, one primal scream exercise or one whatever. Right. So I feel that now one of the things in the being in that wholeness equals wholeness is that I'm in learning about myself and in learning how to be less of a performance and getting to know, getting acquainted with me. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not even getting reacquainted. It's getting acquainted yes. with my likes, my dislikes, my preferences, mm-hmm. what feels good to me, mm-hmm. where boundaries need to be, mm-hmm. that I'm okay in confrontation, mm-hmm. that it's fine for me to say what needs to be said and I don't need to recoil and say, are you mad at me? I, and like, I can own that. That's what I mean about that kind of... That fierceness. That, that <clears throat> energy that is grounded and that willingness to be not liked. Yeah. I used to think that my power was in contorting myself and being agreeable. That would buy me immunity from criticism. And actually I'm realizing now in the whole mess equals whole mess that the true source of my power is decoupling from all of that behavior and experimenting with what is it, what is it like to speak my truth, even if it's unpopular? Yeah. That is what I'm finding is the real, mostly joyful discovery. Mm-hmm. It's not always comfortable. No, It's still quite uncomfortable sometimes, but I am so grateful to have had that support at that stage of the reluctant surrender. And I've had multiple coaches. I still continue. I'm a coach, but I have two different coaches yeah. at this stage because it's it's difficult for me to do that on my own. Yeah. This this process of discovery and peeling layers and layers and layers and layers and just like, huh. It feels kind of good to be me. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said that out loud. So here we are. I love it. So this was a huge episode and I'm so excited about it. I'm going to quickly go over the seven phases. I had to take notes for anybody that's watching this on video. I was not ignoring Mandy and doing other things. I was taking notes like a good little student. (laughs) The first one is denial. The second is triage. Then comes hack my healing, which I just love. Then we fall into the reluctant surrender before coming into the humbling. And then we go into shoots and ladders, which is just so true. And then we have wholeness equals whole mess. And the order that I read them in, like Mandy said, it doesn't necessarily happen in that order. It doesn't stay in that order. There might be another bucket that you have that's not in this order. However, there there are a lot of universal truths in what you shared today. There's a lot of parallels from me personally, a lot of parallels from the hundreds of people I've heard tell their burnout stories, whether podcast guests or or coaching clients, whatever it happens to be. And so I find this to be a beautiful framework to help people understand and possibly, hopefully, this is always my hope for every Friday episode, hopefully create some space for validation, for resonance, for healing, for a dropping of blame and judgment, for a dropping of guilt, for just the ability to look at whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever part of this you're in, and say, oh, that's just what's happening now. And there we are. But the idea and the hope that you just created by saying, I, I like who I am. This to me is something that in there are some places that I totally have that. Within Fried, I am 100% myself all the time. That's really easy. And then I had a call with someone yesterday who was re- looking over some of my branding. And she said, your website is like too corporate and you're not Like you don't need, that's not like a thing anymore. You don't have to do it that way anymore. Like be more silly, be weirder. Like, why are you, this isn't, this picture is just too serious. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm still doing it because the people that I'm afraid won't hire me because they do hire me. I get hired all the time. This is my job. (laughs) But the people that I think won't hire me I think I need to look a certain way and have this kind of font and do and have this type of headshot and what whatever it happens to be to fit that mold. And now I'm starting the unfolding of that part of my life. So I'm in an, another sort of surrender and humbling 
moment for myself and and re-reaching parts of myself that I deemed unacceptable in in this zone of my life, which I find interesting. It's so interesting that you say that because anybody watching the video will see that I have a massive pink heart on the wall behind me. And I coach a lot of very senior executives, MDs, partners, C-suite in finance and private equity. And sometimes if I'm speaking to a very senior person for the first time, there's the voice in my head that says, turn your camera so they can't see the pink heart. Because so you can see the might, books. So it looks makes you look very credible and intellectual and, you know, play up on your PhD and, you know, put your fingers under your chin and cup your chin and, you know, look off into the middle distance and put your glasses <laughs> on and all the things. And then I noticed that part of me thinking that something about this is the softness that we spoke yeah. about at the beginning. And the heart centeredness is somehow not acceptable. Mm. And I actually challenge myself in the wholeness place of like, this is a huge part of who I am. Also, yeah. what distinguishes me to be the powerful coach that I am. And I can own that here. I'm not for everybody, yeah. but there's going to be heart in my coaching big time. And I can have that here as a sign that people can see themselves out if I'm not for them. I don't need to pretend to be something I'm not like, oh, after coaching session three, I'll angle the camera that you can see the heart again. So it's, it's interesting about your headshots thing, because I've recently gotten entangled in some, you know, the, that type of thing myself. Yeah. And it's time to just say, Hey, and I don't, I have said no to so many gigs because I'm like, those people do not want me and I don't want them. This yeah. is not the right thing. I'm silly. I talk about burnout and we laugh. The chances that I'm going to say at least the word shit on stage are extremely high. <laughs> you know, like uh, I can hold back on all the others, but the chances that I'm going to say shit while I'm on your stage are really, really high. And if that's not what we're going for, then you don't want me. If yeah, you they want, want a performance me. of you. Exactly. And I can't I, I, when you're speaking, it's just too costly. It's too costly to do a. It's too much energy in and of itself as a gig. Never mind when you're when you're pretending. So, so now I get to play with that little unfolding and and unhiding um, piece, which I'm excited about. Mandy, you are even better in person than you are on Instagram, and I didn't know if that was possible. Thank so, you. thank you for being the person that you are allowing yourself to be because that is the person that attracted me that's the person that i noticed that's the person that i think is fun and funny and i just had so much joy doing this with you so i'm so appreciative of your time and your energy and just you your uniqueness thank your you uniqueness. Um, if there are people out there that are like uh, i'm in one of those buckets i need mandy yesterday where should they find you what's the easiest and fastest place to get in touch with you find me on instagram I also hang out a little bit more intermittently on LinkedIn uh, because Instagram is the place I can be dorky and fly my freak flag a lot more than I'm still a little bit more buttoned up on LinkedIn, work in progress. <laughs> and I podcast about a lot of these topics about unpicking the ways that we think we have to perform and, you know, the ways we have to think we have to contort ourselves. So you can, you can come and hang out with me and play with me on enough the podcast. And also, if I may, for any of my listeners who are experiencing you, I also want to give a quick shout out to your book and um, um, that they can, they can pick up your book. And I hope that they will start to listen to your podcast too, because the world needs the work that you're doing. So thank you for being not only a gracious host and fun. And, you know, we had some laughs today, which was great, but also for, for doing the work. I think the more conversations we have about this, the better it'll be. I don't know if it'll prevent any brick wall moments, but for people who are in the humbling and coming out on the other side and they're receptive, I'm glad they have you as a resource. So thank you for having me. Ditto. All right, Fried Fam, we are wrapping up. We did a long one today, but this is a really important space. If there is a need for you to rewind to some section 
please know that in the show notes, you will be told which things we said at what time. So it makes it really easy for you. If you love Pride and you have not left us a review, it is one of the best ways that helps us reach more people. This is especially true if you are listening on an Apple device or if you are on Spotify. Those are really, really big ones. Also share with your friends because everybody wants to not be burnt out. I'm pretty sure. And I'll see you in the Facebook group. Until next time. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side. Plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan.